Welcome to Series 2 of the Conformance Cast, an educational series format podcast by A2LA Workplace Training, providing information on international standards, quality systems, conformity assessment, and metrology. Thank you for joining us as we chat with environmental laboratory consultant and assessor, Michelle Wade. I just wanted to apologize for any decrease in audio quality you may notice in these last two episodes of our series with Michelle. It was unfortunately a technical difficulty with our audio that we did not notice until after we had finished recording, but uh, we've cleaned it up pretty well for you so that you should still have a pleasant listening experience. Thank you. Uh, I know you consider yourself uh, like something of an advocate for small laboratories. Is there a major difference in how laboratories of different sizes should be approaching compliance? Like what are some challenges unique to small laboratories? Are there challenges unique to large laboratories? There are absolutely unique challenges to a small versus a large lab. Uh, it's important to understand that ultimately they can all meet the requirements of the standard, whatever standard it is they're supposed to be meeting. And um, it's just how they go about it is going to be a little bit more creative, I guess, for a small laboratory. Uh, the small labs tend to get caught up in the details of the standard. And, you know, if you're a one or two person laboratory, when you look at 100 and for the TNI standard, 138 pages of requirements and try to make them happen, it can be very, very overwhelming. And so they tend to overthink things and not really focus on how what they're already doing meets the requirements and maybe how we need to document that a little bit better. Um, and the larger side of things, it's... Um, it's kind of like having a, a clock and having all these cogs and gears that they're trying to make work and, you know, making sure that everything gets documented proper, proper, properly. Uh, it's really a people management uh, concern with the larger laboratories and making sure that all of those, those cogs in the clock are working simultaneously. Um, in your experience, what do you think is the most daunting part of preparing for an assessment, um, especially for labs seeking accreditation for the first time. And maybe it's different, again, for small versus large laboratories. I don't necessarily think that's that's different between small and, lab, or small and large laboratories. Uh, getting all of the policies and procedures in place and learning how to address the quality systems is really the biggest thing. Um, like I said just a minute ago, most of the time the laboratories, whether or not they're an accredited laboratory or um, they're already doing all of the requirements. It's really learning how to write down things into policies and procedures that meet the requirements, maybe tweaking things a little bit, and then the records and making sure that they record everything that they're supposed to record. It's it's not a small, small undertaking. Um, I know we see it right now and we're doing a lot of work with California and we're doing that on, on a national level. So TNI, uh, the ISO accreditation bodies are actively involved. We're all trying to help California out. And these laboratories, a lot of them are going from being state accredited with whatever that may be in California to having to meet a majority of the requirements of the ISO and TNI standards. 
And for them, by far the most daunting process is, oh my gosh, now I have to have all of these policies and procedures and this incredibly long quality manual. And they, they're really flabbergasted on where to begin. And it's, it's very overwhelming. I mean, I've been there and I've helped the lab start from the, you know, from the base up and trying to get them to, to understand how they're meeting the requirements of that standard already. And they just need to write it down is, is a huge challenge. Um, that was something that we talked about um, in the last series with Rob Kanaki, all of this like documentation requirements. And like you said, there's a lot of things that labs are doing that are already like that are already compliant, but they don't have a written procedure for it. Uh, I don't know if this is true of TNI, but I know with 17025, there's uh, a fair amount of flexibility as to how exactly you meet the requirement, but you just have to follow your own procedures, so to speak. Uh, is that true of TNI as well, or is it a, a more restrictive standard? TNI is definitely more restrictive. It's approximately 100 pages more restrictive than ISO. Is. So <laughs> it's, uh, it's, again, I, you know, Having done both ISO and TNI assessments, by far many more TNI assessments, I will say that while there are so many more requirements, that that the way the standard is written and how we are so very specific about how they meet the ISO requirements is it actually takes less time to do the assessments. So the you know they don't get as much flexibility as a laboratory. They do get flexibility and they can think outside of the box to meet those requirements. They're just more restrictive. And by having that all laid out as a, from an assessor standpoint, it's really quite beautiful. I know exactly what they're supposed to do to meet that ISO requirement because TNI went in and put in a whole paragraph underneath of how we're going to meet that TNI requirement. It's it, yes, it's still a very, very big, big process, but it is what it is. Yeah, that, that does make sense it, from a certain perspective, because even though it's, uh, it's a longer, more specific standard, there is something to be said for having a checklist that is extremely objectively easy to interpret versus having sort of a range of parameters that you must fit somewhere in between trying to suss out if X, Y, and Z variables technically fit within the parameters. So I, I definitely understand what you're saying as far as that being easier to assess and from a certain perspective, in some cases, easier to prepare for. Mm -hmm. um, Absolutely. What are some of the most common misunderstandings you see about compliance or about the assessment process? So it's it's really kind of what we talked about earlier. It's really that, um, that assessment compliance process, it's really about a big brother type of situation where the accreditation body, whether it's an ISO accreditation body or a state accreditation body, they're really just there to get you and to tell you how to do things. The labs tend to lose sight of why those requirements are in place and that it's really there to, um, from the ISO standpoint, you know, to make sure that they're meeting a basic quality system and they can self-check themselves in-house. Um, and from that TNI perspective, that we're creating that legally defensible data. And that's really 
all those additional requirements under TNI is really to produce that legally defensible data that's consistent uh, from laboratory to laboratory across the United States. Oh, it's more so than the checkbox. <laughs> it's more, it really is more than the box and that, you know, fostering that relationship with your accreditation body, whether it's an ISO AB or a state AB, and knowing that you can ask questions, that um, they're there to help help you to an extent through the process. They're not just going to throw requirements at you and tell you, you have to meet these, now go forth and do it. And then, oh, no, that's not right. They're really there to help explain the requirements. And a lot of times it's really helping them understand how that requirement helps them. And it's not just another thing they have to do. Um, from this is, this could be a whole can of worms. We'll see. Uh, from your perspective, how has digital technology and into communication and the whole like digital revolution, like changed the landscape for laboratory compliance? So I'll preface this by saying I still love to go into a laboratory where everything is kept on paper. <laughs> there's, there's something cathartic about holding all that paper and flipping through the pages and the paper cuts and the folders. And uh, But there is really the electronic records. Uh, it's, it's both an amazing, amazing thing and, and unfortunately a downfall for laboratories as well. You have that accessibility standpoint from, you know, everywhere from, you know, management within the laboratory down to the bench level, uh, out to the clients, that accessibility of those records and data is, is absolutely amazing in real time sometimes that you can see that happening within the laboratory. You know, the ease of storing, especially for laboratories that have gone more to that electronic route, they're no longer, you know, bank boxes upon bank boxes of, of data that they're trying to, you know, to store. I know that when I personally work for Pace Analytical, I routinely, because we were still very much a paper society back then, was that, you know, it wasn't unusual for me to create two or three bankers boxes within a day of data that then had to be stored somewhere. Um, in the environmental industry, they have to keep those records for a minimum of five years. So as you yeah, can imagine. This is, this is an extremely different example, but uh, I used to work for a car dealership. Uh, my father still owns a car dealership and um, they still have a dot matrix printer at that <laughs> car dealership. And they, same thing, everything they do due to some kind of regulation has to be stored for like seven years, all of the the sales they do. So same situation, these enormous cardboard boxes just full of paper records in the attic forever. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so that ease of storing data is really, and in some ways, it's like the most amazing thing there is about all this electronic stuff. Or, um, you know, I've got, I've had some of my clients that uh, they've Amazingly enough, like when they do their sampling out in the field, that's all electronic too. So their records are electronic. So when they come into the laboratory, they're uh, able to just like upload all of their their information. So you're no longer having to necessarily track all that forms or copy any, everything over to a, a new logbook. It's um, it's absolutely phenomenal. But that being all said, you know, the security of those records and your data and everything else is the biggest downfall for these laboratories. So it's not just about getting hacked. 
um, especially in the environmental industry, in particular the small laboratories. You know, if it's a if it's a city, municipal, or a county, or even a state lab, all that data is public records. So if they were to get hacked, it wouldn't necessarily be the end of the world. Um, it's still obviously concerning, but not necessarily the end of the world. Uh, but making sure that we can attract um, changes within the records, those electronic records, and making sure we track those changes appropriately. Uh, you know, that opportunity, we're gonna, I'm going to say the bad word here, you know, the, the F word, fraud. Um, it's a lot easier to do that in this electronic world because you, know, if it's especially if it's a easy to manipulate uh, data file, it, they could change that, and somebody might never know if, depending on how they have things set up within their laboratory. And then also, you know, what do you do when your system crashes? How are you going to take care of that data? You know, if you if you go down or there's an outage or heaven forbid your um, your server were to crash. What happens to all of that data and can you recreate it? It's it's a huge, huge concern. Um, just to give you an example of that, and it's something I've, I've talked about a few times, when I worked for the state of Kansas, we had what we called the Never Never event. And so the, the state health lab uh, did both environmental and um, clinical data. So the health, state health lab for Kansas, it's, it's all combined under one roof. And they utilize the same LIMS, which is a laboratory information management system, to house all that data. And they had their LIMS, you know, was on one type of server in one building. And then they had the, another backup on another server in another building. And that, you know, that system was supposed to keep everything from, you would never lose everything. It just wasn't going to happen. Um, and then never event. Theoretically, <laughs> then we had I can, I can tell where this is going. Yeah, right. And both servers crashed overnight. Um, we can't even blame a storm. There wasn't even a storm, but they're not sure what happened. Um, they may have known and they just didn't share. But uh, <laughs> they lost everything within that limb system and all of that data and all of those, you know, the the information. And fortunately, they still had a number of most everything was in paper records in some form or another, and they were able to go back and recreate and they had the backups and um, on paper. Of course, it was a lot of typing. There was a lot of data entry that happened. Yeah. Uh, kind of the kicker to it all was, though, is that limb system was what we call homegrown. So it wasn't an off the shelf limb system. It was something that the over time, the state had developed to really work for them. And a lot of the original developers, the programmers behind it, had retired Um in some cases, they were no longer with us, you know, physically. There wasn't even yeah. a, hey, can I take you out for coffee and figure out what you did here? Uh, it just, it wasn't available. And so they really had to start from scratch. And that, I mean, that's like, you know, the never, never event. It's, uh, it's catastrophic. It's like the worst case scenario example. But I lived through that. Well, fortunately, I didn't live through that. I, I sat back. Um, with my popcorn and watched it happen, <laughs> but it did happen, and it was uh, it was an act, you know, it was a dis disaster, a catastrophe, really. Um, so you really have to be careful when you've got that electronic records. You know, labs are super quick to to jump on that electronic bandwagon, but they have to make sure that those security systems are in place and that they can recreate their data really with what happens, especially in that environmental industry with those five years retention or longer, depending on what they're keeping. Do you find that there's a, a bit of a learning curve issue as well? I know that this is something that uh, I have seen. Well, I even though I'm a millennial, I didn't have a computer until I was 18. I lived out in the woods, you know, as a child. So 
this was a brand new, so I was way behind all of my peers in learning to use computers, uh, but of course I got up to speed eventually. And I think the reality of the situation is that in a lot of ways, you have to understand the electronic system in the same way that you understood your paper system. So do you find that like kind of the learning curve is holding a lot of people back as far as just learning to understand their electronic system? Absolutely. So another issue we're seeing on the environmental side of things in particular is that you know, the people who, who know the most are the are the baby boomers and they're starting to retire and they're going away and we're losing that that knowledge basis uh, but that knowledge basis isn't necessarily about electronics it's about what they're supposed to be doing in the laboratory and why we do those things and some i won't say all because certainly there are uh there are you know the baby boomers out there that know far more about electronics and systems than me as a gen x or you as a millennial will ever know mm-hmm. but they're they're a little more hesitant a lot of times to try a new thing or or do that thing or be able to troubleshoot when something goes wrong. Um, it it even even us younger folks, you know, some of us are better than others in understanding technology and how it can be utilized. I know that a lot of laboratories that have um, as they're bringing on the millennials and you know teaching training them in the laboratory, they they're coming up with very creative and technological ways to go about things in the laboratories. And um, a lot of it, it, it's, it's amazing. Like things that we, you know, that have been in the industry forever would have never thought to do. And it's just that fresh viewpoint and making one, we have to make sure that whatever they're trying to do actually meets the requirements of the standards. And we don't, you know, mess things up in another way. But um, a lot of times you'll see, especially, you know, the management level, they're just not, they're not flexible and they're not willing to give it a try or to, or to look at new things. It's, I think it's, it's not just the environmental industry or the laboratory industry or anything um, that's struggling with that. We're struggling with that as a, as a global situation and us being at very different points in understanding technology. Join us in two weeks to hear more from Michelle. In the meantime, visit a2lawpt.org for blog posts, pre-recorded webinars, and our entire catalog of courses and consulting services. You can also find us on social media by searching A2LA Workplace Training.